It's really good to to see all of you here this morning. It's especially good to hear all of you this morning. I'm standing at the back, kind of a full house for our half capacity. And it just occurred to me how beautiful it is, just as that song relayed, how sweet and how heavenly it is. Uh, when we gather together, when we sing, and, and all your voices are different. Now, some of you are wonderful singers. Uh, some of you are more in my category. <laughs> uh, all of you have different voice, alto, soprano, tenor, bass, baritone. But, but as you sing, all of that blends together in what I think is one of the most beautiful and powerful parts of worship is the singing and praising of God uh, using the human instrument, the voice. I hope that as you sang with your voice, you did as the scripture calls us to do, to make melody in your heart. I know I have been guilty of singing songs that I've sung for years, decades, um, and not paying a lick of attention to what I was singing. And if you haven't been doing that, then I want to encourage you as we continue in worship after the message this morning, to really give thought to the words. Brent and Jace uh, do a wonderful job each week of selecting songs that that really help us draw us nearer together and nearer to God uh, and focus on what we're doing. And that's not an easy task if you didn't know it. So uh, if you see uh, Jace or Brent, either one, uh, please do give them a, a kudos and a thank you for their tireless efforts and work in the body of Christ. We continue this morning in our message on uh, that I've simply called One, and it's uh, a message where we're talking about our unity, the call to be unified in Christ. That's not an easy thing to do, especially as we talked about last week, and no doubt as you have seen, uh, ours is simply a very divided world and seems to be getting more divided all the time. And, and just a reminder, anytime you see division, you are seeing the enemy at work. Okay? And, and as Paul wrote in Ephesians 6, it's not the enemy of the flesh and blood, it's a spiritual battle happening in the heavens. And so pay attention uh, and, and watch the enemy at work and don't get drawn in to how the enemy is working. Last week, we started by saying that Jesus prayed that we might be one so that the world might be one. He called us to be one. He prayed for the apostles. He prayed for all those that would believe in the message. That includes you and I. And Jesus, of course, knew that would draw together male and female. It would draw together Jew and Gentile. It would draw together rich and poor. It would, would draw together people of different nations, of different backgrounds. It would it draw together uh, people who had been raised to fear God and draw together people who had grown up in paganism. Jesus brought people together in his ministry, and the church is about drawing people together as one. Unity is a good thing. But it's not an easy thing. It's hard. If you've been married, you understand that. If, if you've done anything involving another person besides yourself, you know that it's not always easy to get along with people. But it is worth it. And it's the only way that we will reach the world. We will not reach the world as good as we do with ministries and programs and 
and, and great worship and, and online ministries, and we won't, we won't reach the world with that. Oh, we might for a short time, but how we will reach the world is by being unified as one. And so today we're going to get a little practical. We're going to look at how we can do that. Uh, last week you'd say we started with why, and this week we talk about how, how we go about that. So first, let's go to the cross, okay? Turn to Luke chapter 9. To have holy harmony, which is more than just a singing on Sunday morning, I think the first thing that must happen is you've got to take up your cross. Now, we of course know, uh, if you don't know, I'll, I'll testify to you, that Jesus Christ lived a perfect life in fulfillment of the law. And instead of just living that perfect life, he laid down his life to atone for our sins. Jesus had to die. He was the only one that could die for our sins. You'll hear some people say, oh, it should have been me on that cross. No, no, that wouldn't have cut it because you're not even righteous enough to pay for your sins. No, Jesus was the only one who could do that. And, and he did that. Greater love has no one than this. than he laid down his life for his friends. And Jesus did that at the cross, laid down his life spiritually, allowed the, the father to turn from him. And he paid the full price for our sins. But here's the thing, that all sounds good until you understand this. Following Jesus means you and I are called to do the same. He said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And you need to understand that sometimes we misuse this term. When you go through something hard, maybe you've... Uh, suffered with COVID, or, or maybe you've lost your job, or, or maybe you've been through uh, just a, a, a drama and issues and difficulty in your relationships. And some people say, well, you just, everybody's got their cross to bear. Mm, no, that's not exactly what this term means. You see, you and I think of a cross as a religious symbol. Uh, we have a cross across the way in the fellowship hall. Um, and we think of that from a faith perspective. But back when this was written, and back when Jesus said it, the cross was not a religious symbol at all. No, the cross was a symbol of shame, humiliation, and ultimately death. Now, when Jesus said, take up your cross daily, he's, he's saying there, if you're going to follow Jesus, if you're going to walk as he walked, then you're called to die to yourself Every single day. And that sounds easy again to say, but when the rubber meets the road, it's a little more challenging. No, it's a lot more challenging. You see, the cross is not just hardship or suffering. People who are non-Christians experience hardship and suffering, and they're not bearing their cross. No, hard, uh, the cross is an intentional, purposeful, daily decision to lay down yourself for another, to lay down what you want in exchange for what God wants. Paul explained it when he wrote to the church at Galatia. Turn to Galatians chapter 2, verse, uh, I'm just going to look at verse 20. And he's dealing with a whole lot of stuff here. This is a church uh, divided in some ways. Uh, they are 
really called or being called away from the, their, the first gospel and they're being attempted to go into uh, adding things that Jesus didn't require and going back to old parts of the law. And Paul could have made that case quite strongly. He was very strong as a, a Jewish man. But look what he says in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. Galatians 2.20, he says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me, and, and note this, gave himself for me. Now, there are some people who can read Galatians 2.20 and, and just focus on that last part. He gave himself. He died for me. That's wonderful. Uh, he paid the price for my sins. Amen. That's, that's fabulous. But they miss what Paul is calling them to and what Jesus already called them to, and that is this, to be crucified with Christ. Paul said, no, it's not even me. You used to call me Saul. <laughs> But you don't, you don't know that guy anymore. No, that guy's long dead. He, he died the day he was baptized into Christ. And he became a new creature. He was born again. And he's living a new life. So, the first thing we have to do when we think about unity is realize the call to die to yourself. And it's not just about Jesus dying for you, but what you owe <laughs> is the daily decision to do the very same thing. And let me tell you, that's hard. That's hard. When you say no to yourself, when you say no to the flesh, when you say no and deny yourself something that your flesh wants, your flesh is not going to take that lightly. But Paul calls us and Jesus calls us to lay it down and take up the cross and to do that on a daily basis. May I ask you this question? How often have you taken up your cross this week? How often have you laid down yourself for what someone else wanted? Or did you only think about how other people could lay down themselves for what you want? It's very tempting. Very tempting. Number two, turn to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. We get into here, um, and in Ephesians, as we talked about before, the first part of the book about theology, saved by grace through Christ, uh, through faith in Christ. And, and, and then in chapters 4, 5, and 6, as he moves into the practical parts of it, he starts by talking about unity. And so I thought this would be a good text to turn to. Uh, the, the, the second thing that you need to do if you want unity is you have to, to make up your mind. You have to call, have what I call a unity mindset. A unity mindset is not easy to do. Uh, it's not easy to have because, as I said, we're selfish, we're fleshly. Uh, we think about ourselves first. But look what Paul says, Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to look at starting verses 1 and following. He says, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord. Okay, uh, he, uh, 
unity mindset requires humility of mind. And humility of mind is, uh, <laughs> it can be challenging. Some people say, well, I got humility licked. I mean, I'm one of the most humble people I know. Uh, I've, I could probably win humility contests. I'm so humble. Uh, nobody out humbles me. <laughs> You see, the, the, the temptation is when you try to think in terms of humility, it's easy to begin thinking. And, and Paul really does a beautiful thing here. He says, I'm a prisoner for the Lord. Understanding in that context, in that culture, what a, a prisoner meant was something far different than what we think of today. Uh, they didn't have three square meals a day and cable television and free time and, and time to exercise and all of that. No, it was a very different experience. No, no re-education, no rehabilitation, none of that. No, you were in a cell. If you were got food, you were lucky. Water was a luxury. But Paul didn't sit there in the cell and complain and say, well, look how I've suffered for the Lord. No, he said, I'm a prisoner for the Lord. And he uses that to call them. He says, listen. I'm writing this, I want you to live, to urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. He continues, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. I don't know if you've been watching our Wednesday night summits, if you've been watching online, if you've been here in person. If you haven't been, I would encourage you to do that uh, Wednesday nights at 7 o'clock. And um, we've, the past couple of weeks, we've been talking about patience and peace. And Cole and Brenna have just done an, a wonderful job with the text. But one of the things, that, as I've listened to both of them, it, just the realization that it's one of those things that you never fully get there. You never say, oh, I'm completely patient. <laughs> It's kind of a, it's an ongoing work in progress. And people who've been a Christian for decades may still have a challenge working on their patience. And Paul says, this is where it begins. First is that humble mindset. Second is a patient love. Being completely humble and gentle, being patient, bearing with one another in love. And then verse 3, he says, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. The NIV translation says, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. It takes a lasting persistence to keep unity. You have to work at it. Uh, you can have a very healthy church that's been going for decades and done great things, but you still have to work at unity. It takes humility, patience, and persistence. And you can't ever, with any of these things, say, well, we've arrived. We're very humble. We learned that years ago. We're very patient because, you know, we, we've, we've, we've um, laid down ourselves and, and we've, we've been, you know, kind and so forth. You, you never fully get there and say, well, we, we've done all of this unity stuff. You say, well, you know, when Toby gets done with this unity series, we'll surely be unified. No, <laughs> you still have to work at it. You still have to work at it. First uh, Peter chapter three verse eight, <clears throat> and what's interesting to me here is Peter just finishes in First Peter three talking to wives and husbands. Okay, and we've seen this in uh, Ephesians three and and uh, Ephesians. Uh, I'm sorry, First Peter three and Ephesians five that Paul will use, and Peter both will use a illustration from marriage 
to demonstrate a spiritual truth. Now, I can't think of (laughs) any more realistic scenario than marriage, which causes you to have to make up your mind to be unified. I told you last week in the season of weddings and premarital counseling and all of that, and near the end of one of those sessions, as we began, I said, well, are you still ready to get married? You still want to go through with it? And they thought I was joking. And Oh, yeah. we're. I said, no, seriously, are you? They said, well, yeah. I mean, we've done all the planning and, and we're going through the counseling. Yeah, obviously, we're going to get married. I said, and this is true. I said, on the day of your ceremony, I will ask you, are you still ready to get married? Because it's a lot easier to say no at that moment than it is after the moment. I want to know that you are committed, that you have unity of mind, that you're committed to the idea that I am ready to be one with this person. And that that, that, that covenant, as much as the world has polluted it, that beautiful, wonderful covenant was meant to be one man and one woman for one lifetime. And human beings have messed that up and will continue to do so. But God never changed. And to do that, to make that happen, we have to look at verse 8. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, a humble mind. These practices, again, are not areas where you get there. People who have been Christians for 50 or 60 years should still strive toward unity of mind, toward sympathy, toward brotherly love, toward a tender heart and a humble mind. We should weep if the body of Christ divides. In any form or any fashion, for any reason. Because it cheapens the church, it diminishes our witness, and it goes exactly against what Jesus Christ prayed for. It'll make Jesus cry like that little kid. But to maintain unity, we have to have unity of mind. We have to make a decision, just like a young man and young woman getting ready to get married, to make a decision up here, long before the marriage is ever consummated, they have to decide up here that they're ready to be one. In the same way, you and I have to decide up here and in here that we're ready to be one. And unity does not mean my way or the highway. That is not unity. Read again what Peter says. All of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. May we not just take up our cross. May each person here make up your mind that you're ready to be one in Christ. It's easy to be a Christian when it's just you and you're just doing what you want to do. And, you know, (laughs) 
I feel like the Lord is leading me this way. I, you know, but, you know, interestingly, like, like I feel like the Lord was leading me to do something that I already wanted to do. Often, often the Lord leads us in ways that are not things that we wanted to do. Just ask the prophet Jonah. Go to Nineveh. Nineveh? Hey, you dig deep into it. This is literally breaking Jonah's heart. Nineveh? Every person, every God-fearing, God-loving, Christ-following disciple of Christ has had to come to the point where they're ready to be unified, even if it means laying down myself. And finally, it means to remember your calling. And we're going to go back to Ephesians chapter 4 for this. Ephesians chapter uh, 4. When, when I uh, drop off the kids at school, and these days that's only grace, but when Tyler was younger, I did the same. Uh, we would talk about life. Sometimes we would read Scripture. Sometimes we'd talk about different uh, parts of faith and all of those things. But as we'd come to the line at school and get in the, the line of cars and wait, uh, I would try to gear the conversation toward who they are. To remind them that they were loved and are loved no matter what. To remind them of what family they come from. That, that the, the levering name means something. And, and to, to, to use that name in a way to realize who you represent. Remember whose you are and who you are. And then as we would pull closer to the front doors, as they would open the door and get their bag... I would say, I love you, and remember who you are. As I imagine Jesus gathering his disciples for that last meal, that last time of prayer, that last final instruction, I think a lot of it could be boiled down very loosely to the idea of I love you, and remember who you are. The world is very divided. The world has always been divided. The danger is when the church forgets her calling and begins acting like the world. And in those moments, may we remember who we are. I've been torn about whether or not to address this issue straight from the pulpit but I've decided that I should because it's been a, a divisive issue. There's been a controversy at Northside, and I think it's appropriate to use the pulpit to address it. I think many of you are aware of the issue and the trouble that it has caused. It concerns the matter of facial coverings. And I know that you know we're talking about my goatee. 
for nearly a year, uh, I did not wear a facial covering. In fact, for my whole life, I've never worn a facial covering, really. This bothered some to the point that they wouldn't attend. What is going on with the children today? I don't know. We're distraught over my facial covering as well. Some people were bothered by the point that, that, they, that they simply said they would not attend. And they even wrote letters to the elders. And they passionately pleaded with the elders to make me wear a facial covering. And they promised they would not be back until I was made to wear a facial covering. So several weeks ago, an announcement was made, maybe you heard that, mandating a facial covering. So, in obedience to my shepherds, for the last several weeks, I grew a facial covering. Grew my Middleton sprouts as best as I could. And last week, my facial covering was available and viewable to all. Several were pleased. Brian Middleton gave me a high five. Luke Campbell gave me a fist bump. Uh, Clearly, I would never be to their level, but they were... They were clearly pleased that I had a facial covering. Several folks were thrilled at my growth. They said, I look more like a man than a child. But others were not so pleased. They privately admonished me. They'd come up in a hushed conversation. Are you going to keep that forever? You know, you don't have to wear that. And they made the case quite well, I should tell you, that I should shave that nasty thing off. Others stopped coming. And they too said they would not attend church while having to stare at my facial covering. Again, letters to the elders. This time from people distraught over my facial covering. I know we gather to worship the living God, but surely we also gather to judge the preacher. I've wondered what to do about this. Perhaps I'll compromise. I'll shave the covering one week and let it grow out the next. Perhaps we could have two services, a baby face service and a duck dynasty. My true hope is that all of our elders will neglect the ministry of the word and prayer to address this truly most pressing issue. Isn't it that your hope? Or maybe, just maybe, we could remember our calling and keep our focus on things above and not on things below. Ephesians chapter 4. Continuing in verse 4, there is one body. And one spirit. Just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, 
one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. You don't have to be a wordsmith or a Greek scholar to to gather the theme of Ephesians chapter 4, and it is one. I like that ringtone. And this is why again and again, the words of Scripture and those inspired by the Spirit wrote things like Paul wrote to a divided church. To the church of Corinth, he wrote, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you may agree that there be no division among you, that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. And look what he says in verse uh, chapter 3, rather, 1 Corinthians. He says, Brothers and sisters, I could not address you as people who live by the Spirit, but as people who are still worldly. Mere infants in Christ. I give you milk, not solid food, for you are not yet ready for it. Indeed, you are still not ready. You are still worldly. For since there is jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere humans? And we as a church remember our calling. And let not the enemy distract us on Toby's facial hair. There are much bigger things, I promise you. There are much bigger things to worry over, to stress about, to think on, to stew about, to pray over. You were called to be one. And the whole theme of that is one. The church, the ecclesia, is the called out to live in the world and not act like the world. So may we rise to the occasion and remember our calling to be one. We were called to be one. And that doesn't mean called to be one as in my way or the highway. Elders do what I want or I'm out of here. God forbid it. Your elders weep over such selfishness. We were called to be one together. We are called to be one. And unity matters just as much as the other commands of Christ. If I got up this morning and said, you know, I, I've been studying it out. I'm not sure really baptism is necessary. You say, oh, yes, it is. You look at this verse and that verse and this verse and that verse and this verse. I would be run out on a rail. Rightly so. You know, Christ called us to be one. Paul pleaded for it. Peter begged for it. I know, but that's just the way I feel. This is my right. No. No, we lay down those rights to ourself and seek to be one in Christ.
may we not forget the call to be one and the call to take up our cross and lay down ourself. And, and may we not let small things distract us from the big things. Unity matters so much that every single week we partake of something Communion, some would call it. The words, common union in Christ. And if I said, you know, let's just move to taking it once a quarter, once every six months. Well, no, there's a scripture right here. What's that? Perhaps... We miss the point of what communion is all about. The church at Corinth was partaking of communion. They called it the the love feast. It was a little different experience than what you and I experienced. But Paul said, I have no praise for you in this. Do you know why? Because they had just relegated it to another meal. And people worried about who was going to get at the front of the line. And people worried about who brought what to the potluck. And Paul said, this is not right. You are forgetting the point of the Lord's Supper. You are forgetting what the memorial is all about. One body gathered as one body to partake of one body that we might reflect one body. This morning, there's not going to be an invitation. If you have a a need to put on Christ in baptism, or you have a need of repentance or prayer, or or just need of one of our shepherds, and you don't know which uh, who who are the shepherds, come and find me, and I'll help you with where to, to do that after the service. But especially this morning, I wanted to make communion the centerpiece of worship. It should always be. But as we partake this morning, and David's going to lead us in a a few thoughts, I, I want you to think about one body, the body of Christ. And then I also want you to think about one body, the body of Christ. For what purpose did Jesus establish this memorial? If not to bring us together as one. The same as he did the very night he instituted it. Changed the Passover to something far different. As he shared the cup with Judas. And Simon the Zealot. And Matthew the tax collector. To come together as one. We'll now partake of the Lord's Supper I want to encourage you to prepare your minds and hearts thoughtfully and prayerfully and reflect on one body and one body.